Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with triumph crown. Let the lands that sit in darkness Good afternoon. Welcome to the War Room. I'm your host, Bill Evans. I'm here in northwest uh, Atlanta suburbs of Sugar Hill, Georgia, at the uh, uh, secret lair and compound of Michael Minkoff, president of the Nehemiah Foundation. Welcome to the War Room, Michael. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a short bio. I am a writer and an editor, and a producer, and a musician. I am the president of the Nehemiah Foundation. We are dedicated to the liberation of Christian creativity, and uh, I am really happy to be here with you tonight. Well, it's a real privilege to be here. We've got your some of your extended family and your, uh, uh, your brother-in-law, or just friend of the family. Just friend of the family. Friend. Uh, Matt. Matthew Bryan. Matthew Bryant. Brian. Brian. That with a Y. That's with a Y. And it? you're a, a, a state and tax attorney. That's correct. In uh, Georgia and soon to be Florida. Yes, I practice both here in Atlanta and in Fort Myers, Florida. Okay, I've got a daughter in Destin, so. There you go. But I, I get down to Florida a good bit. Well, one of the reasons why I really wanted to um, have Michael uh, on, I wanted to meet Michael, is because of an article that he had written. Uh, and I don't even remember exactly the name, the title, but it was tracking right along where I'd been thinking, and that had to do with, and I'm going to butcher this, Michael, but is it better to be in a Reformed church or a Reforming church? And, uh, you know, it does seem that we as Reformed Christians, there is, a, there is an air of we've arrived, uh, and... Obviously, we all have some degree of fealty to various different uh, uh, creeds and confessions of the Reformed Ecclesia that came out of the Reformation, be it the Belgic, the Heidelberg, the Savoy Declaration, the uh, Westminster, the London Baptist Confession, or or the Synod of Dort, whatever. So I, we definitely know that, you know, what, what it means to be Calvinist and, and, and what we think it means to be Reformed. But, Michael, I'd like to sort of just kind of give you the floor because uh, you've been in the Reformed community all of your life. And so you have, I think, that gives you a unique perspective as having been raised in one of what many would consider to be one of the premier Reformed congregations at least east of the Mississippi as a covenant child so would you and I'm not saying that your your ministry derives specifically out of your childhood or maturing experiences but I'm not saying that it doesn't either uh, so why don't I just give you the floor because you've got a, 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 a we've got a little bit of an audience here and explain to me a little bit more about the ministry, how it 
how it derived from your experience, maybe your frustration, and some um, omissions or fallacies that you believe are, that are prevalent in the contemporary Reformed community. All right, thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I think is really central to this issue is um, the fact that we call ourselves Reformed versus Reforming. And this idea that if you look at Calvin or you look at Luther or Melanchthon or Zwingli or any of these guys, they were very suspicious of the status quo that had been developed by human authority and human tradition. And if you look at the church as it is right now, you, uh, the Protestant church as it is right now, the question would be, are we maintaining that same spirit or is it the case that in a lot of ways we have fallen into a lot of the same errors that the church at the time of the Reformation had fallen into, where we uh, trust human tradition and human authority to such an extent that we're not reassessing or reevaluating things that we have received or accepted as being true. And uh, within the Reformed Church, especially as I grew up, I, I experienced a lot of this, um, this people disagreeing or agreeing with something on the basis of whether or not it was said by a certain person or people agreeing or disagreeing with something on the basis of whether or not it was in accordance with the reformed view and I, I'm, I'm looking at it I'm just like I don't really care if it's the reformed view or the non-reformed view I'm mostly concerned about whether or not it's in accord with the scriptures and it's been really problematic because a lot of people who are in uh, the Reformed Church seem to be a whole lot more interested about what is in accord with the tradition that they have uh, accepted over against uh, what it is that the Scriptures teaches. And in some ways, so particularly this, uh, this article that you were mentioning, the Reformed Church versus the Reforming Church, I'm talking about a balance of the explanation or, or um, delivery of the truth within the church. And the scriptures particularly are, they are expositional to some extent, but the majority of the scriptures are not expositional, they are incarnational. So from Genesis to Revelation, when you're looking at the scriptures, we'll just start with the Old Testament, you have... You have these, um, <clears throat> you have Genesis, Exodus, uh, we'll skip over Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but uh, the minor and major prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the major and minor prophets, uh, that's the whole Old Testament. And aside from two books of the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament is non-expositional. It's narrative, it's poetry. It is displaying, it is showing. And so if you look at the scriptures in terms of uh, showing of the truth versus telling of the truth, the majority of the scriptures are showing the truth. And when I look at the Reformed Church, there's a major issue there in terms of the display or the incarnation of the truth. We might have really, really, really good doctrines a lot of times, and we are very concerned about maintaining a particular uh, purity of our doctrinal approach, but oftentimes when it comes to actually the display or the incarnation of those doctrines, it, it, there's a lot of real lacking 
there. And uh, this scripture seems to be even majorly, even to the majority, uh, emphasizing this this emphasis on uh, a display or an incarnation of the truth. So, for instance, uh, when all of the different cases of the throne room judgments where Jesus is sitting on the throne and he is judging uh, different Christians uh, or, or non-Christians who come before him, there's this emphasis on what have you done? Not, not necessarily what have you believed or what have you said that you have believed, but what have you done? Are your deeds in your body good or ill? And you look at James, and he talks about how the pure and undefiled religion is not maintaining a purity of doctrine necessarily, or maintaining a purity of, 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 of creed, but rather, have you visited the orphan and widow in their distress? Have you uh, remained unstained from the world? Which has to do with your actions and the display of the truth into the world. And by no means am I saying that it's not important to tell the truth and to explain the truth to people at all, but within the Reformed community especially, when we're all about the scriptures and a return to the authority of the Bible, why aren't we following the cues of the scriptures in terms of how we express the character of God into the world? And a large portion of that in the scriptures and in Jesus' own life and ministry has to do with a display and incarnation of the truth. Jesus didn't preach, to, to the largest extent, expositional sermons or explanatory sermons. He, he preached stories, parables, uh, and it says he never preached without a parable. So the idea being that even though there is a portion of the scriptures that is expositional and explanatory, a large portion of the scriptures is incarnational. And I think that that balance needs to be taken seriously within the church as it is now. And I think the Reformed community, to a large extent, where we were dealing with a, an error, right? So the Reformation, it was dealing with a particular over-extreme balance toward the incarnational in the Roman Catholic Church. And so it was saying, look, you guys are so concerned with the incarnational and the display and the show that you've totally lost sight of the truth of the gospel that is explained in the epistles. Like, for instance, Romans. Romans was at the heart of a lot of the corrective uh, you know, doctrinal issues that, that came out through Calvin and Luther and the rest of them. And, um, but... To a large extent, it seems like the Reformed Church has moved to the opposite extreme on that spectrum, and in an attempt to maintain the purity of doctrine and the purity of the expression or exp explanation of the gospel, has sort of forgotten the importance of the incarnation and display of the gospel, both in actions of charity and of, of kindness and compassion toward the world, but, and the importance of the earthly things and, and, and the natural things, but also that we have really lost the expression of the truth in uh, complex and not necessarily one-dimensional or one-sided, uh, you know, explanational um, truths in the, in the arts. So you have, yeah, you have the idea that the, that the arts are capable of expressing truths that are 
even paradoxical and of expressing and framing questions that aren't necessarily resolved. And So do you think that we can get, do you think that aesthetics can teach theological principles in a way that words perhaps cannot? Yeah, I do. And I think that the scriptures are pretty clear about that. I mean, you have, you have the idea that the Old Testament Christians operated in a full-orbed perspective on the truth that was both incarnational and explanatory, and largely more incarnational than explanatory at their time. Um, but even Jesus, when he came as the Word of God, that was the incarnation of the Word of God in a body, um, in a person, a human being, and rather than you know taking charge of some church or becoming some king or becoming some pastor, he, he became a a, a, a lowly uh, you know shepherd. This has come up in a previous war room episode, Matt uh, Michael, where we mentioned the fact, or one of my our guests mentioned the fact that Christ could have established a Socratic or a, or a rabbinic school, but instead his the warp and woof of his daily life became his his pulpit. Right, the idea of discipleship by life on life. Right. Right. And and it, it, it actually does look like a failure. That's what's crazy about it is if you think about it, Jesus had twelve minus one disciples who were fishermen who were not necessarily very well educated, who he taught and lived with for three years. And from that space, from that ministry, he affected the entire world. But when we come into it, and I have people talk to me, to me about this all the time uh, concerning the foundation. How are you going to make a big change? You know, how are you going to change the civil government? Or how are you going to change the, uh, the, the really big mega churches that are in the United States? How are you going to make a difference in those arenas? Because it's only through this top-down, big old change that you're going to make any difference. And I talk to him and I say, you know, you've got, you've got Jesus coming into this situation with 12 fishermen. And he was able to change the world through service. And to a large extent, I believe that our goal and our method should be no different than Jesus's, that we should be about life on life. We should be about, I mean, I love what you're doing, going around the country and talking with different people and visiting with different people and different families and, and, and you know, pressing the flesh, right? Not, not this idea that there, there's not a whole lot that's going to be changed through, through a merely ideological discourse at this point, especially at this point. And we've talked about this to some extent, you know. You look at um, you look at Facebook or social media or comment threads on, on articles. It's not the case that there's a lot of forward movement happening because people are talking to one another, kind of, but they're more talking at one another. Mm -hmm. And so you have some people that are saying one thing and they believe it, and they, they, they pool together with all the people who agree with them. And you have people on the other side who are pulling together with the people who agree with them. But there's not a lot of listening and service going on between people who don't agree with one another. And, um, and I've found, and, and this is what Jesus said. He said, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be 
the slave of all. And so if I'm looking at a person who completely disagrees with me on every area, what's the, what is the most effective way for me to gain influence in their life? And I'm telling you, the most effective way is for me to serve them. It's for me to go in their life and say, what is it that you need? What is valuable about your life, about your person? And how can I affirm you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? And what's crazy is that when you do that, people start asking, you know, what, well, what are you about? <laughs> well, you know, the, the social media and, in fact, uh, all electronic-based media imposes an artificial and unnatural set of uh, laws and rules upon human interaction because all historically all you know the whether it be the interaction of, 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 of that we find in Ephesians you know let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth but only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear, are 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 in Philippians. Consider one each of you is more uh, the other is more important than yourselves. These are principles that can much more easily and naturally play out in flesh on flesh interaction, um, just by the dynamics of the fact that I'm I'm obviously sitting in front of another man who looks like me and he engages me like I engage him and. And there's that give and take back and forth. But there is a sense in which, in social media at least, the, 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 the text becomes the person. Right. So that the person is reduced to simply his keystrokes. Yeah, and I've had a really interesting experience, a lot of actually really interesting experiences. So I, I try to respond to most everything that anybody writes uh, about the things that I've written. And um, so there was one situation, Bojidar Marinov had shared an article of mine, the Christian rationalism piece, uh, how Christian rationalism turned me into a psychopath. So he shares this article and he has a bunch of, a bunch of comments. And I, I saw that he had shared it, so I went and started responding to some of the different things that people were saying on his thread, right? And what was really interesting is people didn't realize that I was the author of the article. They just they they acted and 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 wrote back to me as if I was just some other guy. And people were saying things like, you know, uh, straw man arguments, or you know, this is silly, or this is stupid, or this is whatever. And it was really interesting because <laughs> I had this one interaction with this one guy where I was responding to him and I was saying, should I change the post, meaning the article, you know, uh, to, in order to make it more clear according to the things that he had been saying. And he wasn't, I guess he wasn't sure what I was even saying because he didn't realize that I had written the original article. After two or three back and forths, he finally realized that I was the author of the original article that he was interacting with. And his tone immediately changed. It was really strange. Like it was immediate where his tone changed and he started talking to me as if I was a person rather than as if I was just some like, I don't know, virtual argument or something. 
and he and he started showing me a, a certain degree of of respect and consideration that he hadn't shown me at the beginnings of our interaction and that's been something that has regularly happened where people who disagree with me at first and I go in and I just say, look, you know, I want to be clear. I want, I want to dedicate myself to, to this, this discussion. I want this discussion to be fruitful. Um, and as soon as they sort of realize that there's a, that there's a, a real personality that's, uh, that, that's going on here, a real person or whatnot, then, then the, the nature of the conversation starts to change. Would you like to? Uh, I want to give you a break. I'm jumping in here. Yeah, yeah. It's in my show. You can get what you want. Would you like to take the chance, the opportunity to refute the myth that artistic individuals care more about feelings than they do proposition and, and are getting along peace than they do propositional truth? Well, I don't necessarily mean to refute it because I think that most artistic people do care more about emotions than they do about propositions. Um, some, some do, anyway. I, I don't necessarily... Here's the thing. I was, I was raised in the Reformed Church. I was born in 1983, the same year that the RPCUS split from the PCA. I was raised in an extraordinarily uh, orthodox reform community and I learned the catechisms and I you know I was raised in the one-hour sermon primacy of the preaching of the Word of God etc kind of environment and and honestly I loved it I that is my that is where I live God, that's what God has given me. That is how He has uh, has developed me as a human being. Because um, different people have different skill sets and different ways of approaching the world. And uh, I was absolutely favored to be in that kind of an environment because an intellectual environment is is very much the kind of environment where I thrive. I love reading. I've read from a very young age. I've read very broadly and very deeply. And intellectual pursuits and intellectual discourses, that's the way that I understand the world. But uh, when I got married, and in fact before I got married, I met my wife. And um, That's she, good. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah, yeah, definitely. You should meet them before you, you marry them. You should meet them before you marry them, right. As a general rule. As a general rule. Yeah, this is reality... Uh, podcasting folks <laughs> and uh, unscripted unedited when I met her uh, she is not like me she didn't view the world the way that I view the you world you, you described her as being emotionally intelligent yes very much so and I, and I know our, leer, our, our listeners are waiting with bated breath to hear the definition of what it means to be intel, uh, emotionally intelligent because you know what our listeners, in fact, we know that the body of Christ is made up of a broad variety, an infinite, probably, totally. variety of personalities and temperaments uh, specifically made by the sovereign creator who is the penultimate artist in the cosmos. He's the archetypical artist. And so every one of these personality types and personas has a specific 
value purpose, purpose. value yeah, yeah go ahead so what does it mean to be in emotionally intelligent well she is naturally empathetic so i mean let's give you illustrations so I she wants a, to give money to homeless people. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'll be hanging out in a particular environment, and I'll be talking and talking and talking as I want to do. And my wife, without making it publicly visible, will indicate to me through some mark. Sometimes she'll squeeze my knee. Sometimes she'll just look at me, and I will know the people that I'm talking to right now have checked out. Like, they don't want to hear anything that I'm saying. They don't, they're, they're not interested in hearing any more along the lines of where I'm going. And uh, for some reason, I'm totally insensitive to that. I, I am completely not capable of understanding when a person has checked out on the conversation. And... Um, my wife, for some reason, is absolutely in tune. And in fact, what's really interesting is since we've had, we have five kids, my oldest daughter is very much like my wife in those terms. And she is amazing. She amazes me. Sometimes I look at the things that she's doing and recognize the things that she is, uh, is able to do in environments, in, in, you know, in social environments, and it just boggles my mind. Um, well, this is going to maybe rattle some of the cessationists in our audience. <laughs> but, but would you would you submit, from your experience, that there is such a thing as a a, a spiritual gift of intuition or something akin to intuition? Sure, definitely. My oldest daughter, Selah, I'll tell you a story. So we were at the we were at this uh, scratch and dent dryer and washer place. And uh, we were looking at two different dryers, and this salesman was really selling us on the more expensive dryer. And my daughter, Selah, is sitting there with us. And this guy is going hard and getting really intense, you know, really pushing us really hard. And Selah is sitting there, and she's watching him, and she's feeling the situation out, and she just puts her hand on his hand and he looks down at her and she says what is wrong with you just like that what is wrong with you why are you so intense right now and he just stopped uh, and he just stopped and he didn't uh, he didn't really know how to respond to her but it was really strange to me because at, at, at the time she was about six or seven years old but she she was able to detect and uh, respond to these sort of um, these emotional energies, right? These 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 energies of personality that were uh, being thrown around, and and in a lot of ways, we were made very uncomfortable by this guy's insistence. Say, a lot six or seven years old at the time was just able to say, "No, let's cut this. <laughs> let's shut this down." Okay, so let's keep this going forward in yeah. terms of moving the ball. Yeah. Down the field, you were raised. I would presume, from what I know of your background, that you were raised in a quote-unquote cessationist totally uh, attitude. Right. But I'm getting what I'm getting this vibe because I've got this gift too. Yeah, yeah. Is that your life experience and living with your own family has somewhat invalidated 
the idea that spiritual gifts don't continue to operate. Well, I think to some extent. I mean, here, this is this is what it boils down to: is that I think that a lot of people in the church, especially within the Reformed Church, that don't have great intellectual gifts, are viewed as less important in the church. They're they're not given the same degree of value. And so, in other words, we pay lip service only to the priesthood of the believer. Right, right. But when it comes down to it, if you're not intellectually gifted, the likelihood is that you don't have a great role in the church. You're just a servant role or a secondary role. And your furniture. Your furniture, right. And you're the prop for the pastor's performance. And I, the fact is that that like. In an, an objective or direct or explicit kind of way, no pastor is going to say that. But I saw my father, I saw my mother, I saw lots of people in the church being treated like furniture because they didn't necessarily have insight or scholarship or intel- intelligence or or intellectual acumen. And Well, you can't say that about your mother and father, though. They're well, bright people. They are bright people, but the thing is that they're not necessarily bright bright in the term in terms of leadership. Yeah. Like they're not Well, they don't have a master's They're not divinity. seminary students. Yeah. They're not masters of divinity. They're not they're not doctors. Well, I was well, say, well in, at least in conversations with your father, he's as smart as I've ever talked to. Well, yeah, that's what's really interesting though is that that there are all sorts of kinds of intelligence. Right, yeah. So, like, for instance, I've dealt with my dad, right? So, from my youngest days, my, my, my basic approach to the truth and to, and to everything, basically, is re-evalu- re-evaluative. That, that is my approach. So, why, why? Why do we think this is the case? Why do we think that's the case? You know, I want to know why. Give me, the, give me the foundations. Give me the structures. That's what I want to understand. And so, because of that, to a large extent... When some people say this is the way we do it, you know this, this old joke. You know this old joke about the 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 woman who always cut the end off of her roast. No, I've never heard that. One. Okay, okay. So there's this woman who, for years and years and years, cuts the end off her roast, and she doesn't know why she does. It's just that's the way her mother did it, right? She always cuts the end off her roast before she puts it in the oven, right? And she so after like 30 years, her husband finally says, "Look, babe." Why are you doing this? Why are you cutting the end off this roast? You need to ask your mom why she did it. So she goes and she talks to her mom. She says, Mom, why did you cut the end off the roast? And and her mom says, because our, our pan was really short. And that was it. That her pan was really short, so she cut the end of her roast so, she, so it could fit in the pan to go in the oven. But she didn't understand the reason for it. Right, and so tons and tons of people operate according to authority. They do the things they've done because that's the way things have been done, and so they just follow that. Right? My dad was like that. My dad is dogged loyal. He, ha- I mean, he's woken up at the same time in the morning for 40 years. He's worked for the same company for 40 years. He's lived with the same woman for 40 years. He has been a faithful, dogged, loyal, consistent man for like basically the majority of his life. I'm not like that. I'm just not. I'm not like my dad. For a long time, I despised him for it. But over time, I realized there's a lot of value in it, but I, I still can't live that way. I can exactly identify. My father worked for one company his entire life, 38 years, married to one woman, 
he was the, the archetypical type B. And I was a type A or something beyond that, type E. You know. But but I realized later on, the older I got, the smarter my dad got. You know, right, no, totally. But I realized that it was types like my dad that are the, the adhesive that holds societies together. Totally. It takes people... It takes people who are on the cutting edge, you know, people who are who are pushing the envelope, but but we're not the kinds of guys that civ- that build civilizations. No, we're the guys that design civilizations, but the bricks and mortar of civilization are the everyday average plotter. Faithful man, though. Like my dad is a totally faithful man. I can't live like that though. Every single morning, every single day, I reassess why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I can't help it. Every single day, pretty much, even multiple times in the day, I think about why am I doing what I'm doing? Is this what I should be doing? Et cetera, et cetera. My dad can go for, for weeks or months or years without thinking about that kind of stuff. And so for him, when he accepted the Reformed faith, he didn't necessarily understand why the catechisms or why the creeds were organized the way they were, but he accepted that this, this is the truth this is what I'm, what I'm adhering to, what I'm submitting to, and I, I don't have the insight. He had humility, right? I don't have the insight. I don't have the understanding necessarily to add anything or contribute anything that's that's better than this. Therefore, I will submit to it, right? Well, I come into the situation and I say, why? Like my whole life is a why. Like why are we doing this? Why is the Westminster Confession this way? Why are, why are the creeds organized this way? Why is church organized this way? Why do we celebrate the Lord's communion this way? Why is our church, you know, why is worship balanced with an hour worship and this many songs and this version of communion, etc.? And my dad didn't really necessarily have answers for that, and he viewed my approach to that as being challenging or, or, or insubmissive or insubordinate. And so I... I was kind of pushed away from the church because of, that was the approach. Like, if you're going to challenge these things, then you are unsubmissive. You know, Doug Wilson says that every issue ultimately boils down to the same schoolyard uh, exchanges. Why? Yeah. Who said? Right. Says who? Says yeah. who? Yeah. Says who? And as I've grown older, I've grown to really appreciate my dad's approach. And I've grown to really honor my father because because there is a great humility in what he's doing. But aside from just the great humility, I can't do what he does. I can't wake up in the morning like he does. I can't I can't pursue life with the consistent rigid structure okay. that he does. Okay, I'm gonna you know? pull it back onto topic yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna have to do that a lot. With true confessions. Well, yeah, unless you want a five-hour radio. True, true confessions here. We could do this all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to limit myself to about uh, another 11 minutes. Uh, I, uh, in the run-up to our meeting and yeah. some of the conversations that we had, you know, I I expressed to you some frustrations or some observations that I had made about uh, the body of Christ uh, and how it's functioning. You know, certainly in the Reformed camp, it seems that we are slicing the ends not only off the roast, but in ever, ever thinner <laughs> slices so that we are much, much better at breaking up than making up. And then we've got this proliferation of micro-denominations right. uh, that we, in the same way that we pay lip service to the priesthood of, the belie- of every believer, 
that every person is unique and, and been equipped with spiritual gifts for the building up of the saints. We, uh, um, where did I go? Did I lose my, did I lose my thought? Uh, we, we, I'm going to go back to some fallback. Um, Scott Allen Buss, I'm going to try to do a save here. Ungraceful. Scott is a, uh, a pretty edgy blogger, and he's probably, of all the people I know, can rebuke you and make you like it uh, about as with as much adept skill as anyone I know. But he's a very gifted graphic artist, and his blogs, if you've looked at firebreathingchristian.com, and Scott does our war room, he does our Hellraiser report on, on, on um, Wednesdays, he is the blogger and the creator of firebreathingchristian.com and uh, stick, people, stick People for Jesus and uh, endtimes.news parody website. But he's very, his, his, his artistic skill is very evocative in that it really, uh, you know, it, it, his art should not only augment his, his, um, his argument, but in some cases, his art is so good, his that you don't even need to read the article. Right. You get the you get the point through his his graphic art, his his, his artistic skill. Now, I, obviously, you, everybody knows that the that the the purpose of the War Room podcast is to be tactical mm-hmm. and strategically. Uh, you know, we we. We say we want to move the ball down the field. Right. We want to be a church that is semper reformanda. Okay. So, in the time that we have remaining, because we've been having, we've been enjoying our freedom in Christ <laughs> with some uh, tasty adult beverage and some, and and the the the, the, the fruit of the earth, vis a vis some cigar leaf, some tobacco leaf. But I want to really try to press home in the time we have left, Michael, is. Whether you would say from an artist perspective, or from an empathetic person's perspective, or a person who has been raised in the Reformed tradition, a covenant child, who has, who, in whom all of your children have received the sign and seal of the covenant mm. in the same local congregation where you did. Mm. So you have some longevity there. You have some consistency there. You have a legacy there. So. From your perspective, what are your lessons for the body based on your personal experience as they are uh, affected, also in particular, by the way God has made you to be an artistic editor, an empathetic, a person who has, I guess you don't consider yourself as empathetic, your wife is the empathy, but... I'm learning. How... Take this opportunity, if you will. Slowly. We want to talk about the Reformation, the next Reformation. And we don't commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation by having biographical sketches and breakout sessions on Martin Luther's hymns and his marriage. We do it by, by examining ourselves and asking the Lord to show us where the body of Christ needs to be reformed. Right to to comprise the next reformation because we need to be always reforming. Yeah. So, 
instruct the church. You take the time that we have remaining, instruct the church in areas that you feel that we are remiss or deficient. Okay. So, I'm not fit for this, but I'll do my best. Um, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the wall and uh, the door of the church at Wittenberg, his intention was to start a discourse. It, it wasn't so much the idea that he wanted to start a division. It became a division because the Roman Catholic Church wasn't willing to accept that a lot of the things that he was saying needed to be addressed. Um, but within the church as it is now, I mean, I'm looking at the Reconstruction Movement and the Theonomic Movement and the Reformed Church, and I'm saying, look, guys, you can't reconstruct the world if you can't even reconstruct a single relationship. Amen. And I'm looking at these guys and these leaders who can't even get along with one another when they agree on 99.9999999% of things. And I'm saying, things are amiss. You, if you think that you're going to uh, preach the gospel, which at its heart is the reconciliation of the universe to God, and you're telling me that you cannot reconcile with a with a person who's you know hurt your feelings or whatever, then it, it's problematic. We're looking. I mean, you look at Galatians five and you look at the fruits of the spirit and the deeds of the flesh. Almost half of the deeds of the flesh have to do with getting along. You've got envy, dissension, factions selfish ambition, a spirit of dissension, etc. These are the things that right now are defining the reform community. I don't know how many even just reformed denominations there are, but they're probably like 50 or 100 or something just in North America. And I look at like the OPC, the RPCUS, the Hanover Presbytery, and you know, and and just the, just those guys right there, PCA, just those guys right there. There's no real reason why they shouldn't be part of the same body. There's no real reason why they shouldn't be part of the same fellowship. And and what a testimony that would be to the culture, even culture that is gospel illiterate, theologically illiterate, American culture. If they were to see four or several. Reformed congregations rejoining. Rejoining that would that would be there would be a testimony. I agree because Jesus said straight up, straightforwardly, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And when you look at the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, and peace being the the, the first three, I, I don't see that. I don't see that in the reform community. And you know, I. I'm in the reform community, so that's what I'm going to be most critical of, because that's that I'm being self-critical to a large extent by talking about that. Now, do you think that oftentimes, you when you have your even your broadly evangelical bodies, I call them even jelly girls, mm-hmm. ease and jelly girls, <laughs> they're you know a mile wide, inch deep. Even jellyfish is the yeah. Term the, there's that too. The. Uh, but the reason why they get along so swimmingly is because they don't have any real standard. 
for truth is more they they don't put the emphasis on truth they put more of an emphasis on experience and immediate but but and, and, and perhaps as reformed people we put more of an emphasis on propositional truth but one of those propositional truths as you just brought up is the fact that Christ as the head of the church commands you to die and to love your brother as and, yourself and even to submit yourself in the fear of Christ to others there's that, but you know what? What's interesting is about even in these uh, non-denominational, even jellyfish, whatever you want to call them, uh, type environments. I mean, I got a I got a friend who's who's wanting to become a member at a Reformed Baptist community, and he was baptized as a baby, and that community is absolutely adamant that he be rebaptized in order to become a member of that church. So it's not just a it's not just a Presbyterian or like totally reformed kind of problem. The exclusivity within the Protestant Church is kind of spread out among all these different environments and these different traditions. Because I'm sitting there going, you know, we're willing to accept Catholic baptism as a valid baptism. Some reformed churches do. Well, the reformed churches that you know. Because that of the I've Trinitarian formula. Yeah. Many don't, though. Right. RPC and I have been among them. But they should, is the thing. They should. And here's the thing, is that it really boils down to... I have I have a lot of Catholic friends, or Roman Catholic friends, and they... I, I am not Thank going you for to joining say, us on the war room. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to say that those brothers are excluded from the Fellowship of Christ. Because I have experienced the resonance of the Spirit with those brothers. Now, I don't agree with them on everything. I really don't. We strongly disagree on a lot of things, doctrinally, obviously. I well, mean, you, obviously. You, you, I think you, I think you acknowledged earlier, and we both did, that, that, that they're saved in spite of their Roman Catholicism. Yeah, they're saved I, by Christ. Exactly. In spite. Now, there'll be many in RP, you know, the Covenanters and, and people that are highly factious would tell you that if they're and others and I don't want to I don't want to throw stones at anybody even right. though I may not be naming them would tell you that if they are truly regenerate that they will come out well that it, yeah maybe but the question is when but scripture doesn't you know we don't have a chapter and verse on that when i mean when i mean they it may be the case that you know 100 or 200 or 300 well, or 400 or 500 even years even these yeah. coptic christians who've lost their heads to isis let me tell you something i have a hard time taking cheap shots at somebody's doctrinal statement when, when they're worried, willing to die when for jesus to die for jesus yeah exactly that's what i'm saying too so the situation is i i'm willing to say that Jesus is more inclusive and more welcome, welcoming and larger than I probably think that he is. And, you should, and you're a five-point Calvinist. I am. Yeah, I am. Totally. Completely. And, but at the same time, I would say, I mean, I have tons of friends. I have tons of friends all over the place who, are, are, who love Jesus and are working inside Jesus' kingdom, who don't agree with me on a lot of things, and I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but when we're together, especially, and see, this is what comes back to sort of that, that Facebook idea that you're talking about and the social media idea. When I live with these people and work with these people and there's a pressing of the flesh and we're hanging out with one another and we're talking and we're living together, 
the, a lot of these issues are are inconsequential. Yeah. So you, in other words, just like you're saying, you know, uh, to uh, a person maybe criticizing you for your relationship or your association with this person, you'd say, "I'm sorry, but his fruit of the spirit trumps your doctrinal statement." Uh, totally. Yeah. Right, and, and, and see, that's the thing is what I'm talking about is that half of the deeds of the flesh have to do with not getting along, whether it's dissensions or factions or envy or selfish ambition or whatever. But you have love, joy, and peace, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of the, None of these things have anything to do with your doctrinal perspective necessarily. I'm not saying the doctrinal perspective isn't important, I think that all of us, as we are drawn by the Holy Spirit to a greater truth, are going to have clearer and better perspectives on the truth. But in the meantime, while we're working together and while we have this relationship with one another, we're all going to have different perspectives and different angles. And I say, so be it, and I'm still willing to love and, and honor and respect and value and recognize that the Holy Spirit might be working in your life differently than he's working in mine. And there's no necessary reason for me to say that our fellowship should be broken just on the basis of a difference in doctrine, especially if I'm seeing a resonance of the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And I, and I do see that. In well, if, all you're, in, if you're on the cutting edge, if you're in the heat of battle, uh, you know, Whitfield certainly and Wesley were, in many res- in some respects, uh, opposed theologically, but they worked together. Now I see hands. I see that hand out there. I'm not a Baptist, but I can still see that hand. <laughs> well, I have just a slight counterpoint to offer. Not really, not to take over Michael's interview. No, go. Um, but I was raised in a generally conservative evangelical church. And was uh, my youth pastor was uh, someone who's now the pastor of the, one of the largest, most recognized non-denominational churches in Atlanta, if not the country. Is that the point? It, well, I, yeah, I don't care for not to name names, but, <laughs> but um, and this is not to take away anything from what Michael's saying. I will say, however, when I first became Reformed, it was as a Reformed Baptist, and when I met my wife, I. Very lovely, by the way. Thank you very much. I completely agree. <laughs> not sure it's okay for you to recognize that. That's, that's okay, but I appreciate that. <laughs> Why would God have made I guess her lovely if I didn't? <laughs> would He want me to go to the Grand Canyon and not recognize that it was oh, okay. really a work of art? <laughs> okay, granted. Okay, okay. okay. Right. I can see that point. M- moving on. Um, her face is red. <laughs> <laughs> but one of my first examples of unity was because of confessional fidelity and doctrine. And that was when I went to her church, it was pastored by an OPC pastor. I was a, I was a seminarian at, at a Baptist seminary, uh, fairly newly reformed, I guess a couple of years in. And I wanted to teach a Bible study. And the pastor said, well, what's your doctrinal perspective? I said, well, I subscribe to this London Baptist Confessor in 1689. He said, great, we're Westminster Confession of Faith. You can't teach on article, whatever it was, there's two or three articles. He said, on all the other articles you can teach, if there's any question raised on these three articles, you refer them to the elders. I said, wonderful. And having a clear articulation of where we stood doctrinally 
actually enhanced our unity. And so not to, not to take away anything from what Michael's saying, but I think being clear, as long as you don't say, well, there's nothing we can do because we disagree on pedo communion, for instance. Totally. But having I say, okay, the, one of the wonderful things I experienced have, having come out of the evangelifish uh, segment of the church was to say, okay, this doctrinal clarity can be a real enhancer to unity. Because now we see the 99, we see with really crystal cl- clarity the 99.99% of the things. Because I know on all these other articles, 20-something other articles, and not to mention all of the uh, catechism questions, we're exactly the same. But there are some that we're different on. And I respect his authority, and I submit to it in his church. And we were able to have, we actually had a wonderful working relationship during that time. So um, I think, uh, not necessarily in defense, but in a hesitation or a caution to flee from that kind of confessional uh, fidelity, I would say, don't necessarily flee from it, but recognize it for its play, use it for what it can be, which is a tremendous... Uh, a tremendous statement of look world we might have 20 different denominations and maybe there's a way to to express that unity without being in one body because as Christians we're not apathetic about truth and if if, and if we believe something paid to communion or something like that I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with choosing for our church or our closest fellowship those who are like minded as long as we don't let that keep us separate from those who don't agree with us on every other thing. I don't pretend to be a, uh, a, a real book hawk and, uh, because I drive a lot and don't as, spend nearly as much enough time reading. But on, uh, following along that and sort of putting a, 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 an exclamation point on that, as I've often really wondered, and I'm lacking, sadly, I have to admit, uh, I should prepare better for my broadcast, but these are organic. <laughs> Uh, what Paul means when he says um, there must be disagreements among you that that which is approved may be understood or something yeah. like that. And, and the idea is is that in the providence, how do, how do divisions within the body of Christ, how does that work within the providence of God to advance his eternal purposes for his glory and our good? Yeah. Well, and I think that is the challenge, is having very clear, disciplined, rigorous perspectives on things, and yet being willing to be gracious to other people when they don't have the same opinion. So do you think that these disagreements are the whetstone that our blades are to be sharpened against? They should be. They should be, and I think if I could draw one more anecdote... Um, which I hesitate a little bit because it, it might sound like self-glorification. But I played on a championship sports team uh, when I was younger, much younger. Tilly Winks? A lot fewer. Oh, <laughs> it was chips. <laughs> That's the bulldog in me coming out. Nah. Um, but when we were at practice or when we were talking amongst ourselves in a game, we got, I mean, we yelled at each other. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, why? Because we had championship as our goal. Yeah. Um, but when it came time to play the other team, uh, we were rock solid in our unanimity. 
but when we were practicing or when we were going over different things, somebody was messing up, by golly, we'd be the first to jump on Before the coach could even get on them, we would be jumping on each other. And it was in a, yeah, it was a competitive environment, but it was also because we have a goal and we don't have time to get well, it Well, you know, you had different exercises to build up different motor skills and muscles and strength and so on and so forth. And perhaps we need to perceive as doctrinal disagreements as long as they're not pertaining to cardinal doctrines, we consider to be cardinal doctrines, and I think those are pretty much indisputable. That these are really that the that the minor differences that we, in spite of the fact that they're minor, and they're per, we would call them secondary or tertiary peripheral issues, whether it be uh, the mode of baptism or the recipient of baptism or the or the Lord's Supper or or or, or the type of music or the liturgy. Or the, these are the exercises. These are the these are the drills that God has designed to build us up. And to teach us love and self-mortification and these other important, you know, sanctification building blocks uh, that we, you know, what would it be like if we just all agreed? I mean, the fact is, there are brothers that I agree with down the line on almost every point, but that doesn't make them my best or closest brothers. That doesn't make them the men that who... Have, from whom I have benefited the most right. in terms of my spiritual upbuilding yeah. and sharpening. I, 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 have, I have grown more from people that have sharply disagreed with me. Um, and yet, generally speaking, it's those who sharply disagreed with me, but who, for one reason or another, usually by their actions, I knew they loved me, and I knew they wanted me to follow Christ uh, with everything I had. And and so maybe the, the motive and the, the overall spirit of those disagreements and those discussions is critical um, and, and Michael and I have had some uh, discussions um, but God knows I think between the two of us we desire to spur one, and on, one another on to following Christ to our very utmost and of course our disagreements are minor for the most part probably not even worth mentioning like, but the heart really of it small. is love. But I mean, we love the heart each other. Is love. We love each other and we, I, I want your benefit yeah, and exactly. you want mine and so if we believe in something strongly, of course, we're going to fight for it. But at the same time, we can fight for something because we recognize that it could be a benefit to the other yes. without devaluing or undermining the importance that you have in Christ's kingdom. That you have an importance and a place in Christ's kingdom that I don't have. And I submit myself to the value of your place in Christ's kingdom okay. that if I were to cease to exist... I would I would do it if it meant that you could keep moving on. And and I guess that that is that is really the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of Jesus that Jesus laid down his life for others. And when he called leaders into his church, he said, "I don't want you to be leaders like the Gentiles who lorded over each other. I want it, I want you if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven you need to be the slave of all although he yeah. existed in the form of God he did not consider equality with God to a be, thing to be, to be grasped, grasped. Yeah. right but emptied himself yeah. right hypostasis right so yeah. I am a I am a fallen person I am not I am not right. worthy to to consider myself more important than either of you men 
So if, if my service, if my laying down myself and submitting myself could be a benefit to either of you men, then I should be willing to do that in the spirit of Christ. And I guess the attitude that really bothers me within the Reformed community, but really within the church in general, is this idea that I would rather you all be like me. That you all need to be like me. If you were to believe and think like I thought, if you were to believe like I believed, then the church would be better off. Where instead it should be a matter of, no, I want to appreciate and value, elevate and honor what God is doing in your life. And if you are being motivated by the Holy Spirit, then you want to appreciate, honor, value, and elevate what God is doing in my life. And it is through those mutual elevations that Christ's church is lifted in the face of the world. That the world and the unbelievers look at that and they say, you're not like anyone else. Well, think about this for a second yeah. as I may interject right. this as using, uh, using my uh, prerogative as the host. What, is really, what really typifies the spirit of the Reformed community is the factionalism that's represented by the words, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. I'm not of any of those. I'm yeah. of Jesus. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> with, with the proper metrosexual inflection. <laughs> right. uh, now, on the other hand, we as hard-bit Reformed types. I mean, I'm a ten-point Calvinist, right? right. I mean, <laughs> totally, uh, thoroughly. Well, each of the you know, five we, have like sub A, sub B, sub B, sub C. Have you noticed that we we have a problem? I'm, maybe I'm just maybe I'm telegraphing. Maybe this is not true of anybody but me. I have a problem with the gospel with with the epistles of John because John does not speak my language. Paul speaks my language. John is talking, and, and it makes me wonder: is that you know, I wonder is if we're not loving one another biblically enough until it actually starts to look embarrassing. Yeah. It's like we're saying, man, these guys love each other to the point that it's downright sickening. What are they going to do? start it's doing silly. next? Holding hands? Right. Well, I think at that point, you've started to really alter the paradigm of what it means and it doesn't mean that we're that we're um you know casper milk toast limp-wristed mm -mm. you know non-manly no, it's worth more if you're very absolutely exactly. completely committed to what you believe and you're still willing to lay it down for somebody exactly. else it doesn't mean anything because that's the thing is like the proverbs talk about you know, that uh, kindness in the tongue is, is healing to the bones, but corruption in it is, is worthless, you know, basically along those lines. The idea that, that, okay, so you have these people who are, are, are loving towards LGBT, you know, whatever, homosexuals, etc. Yes. But the thing is, they don't disagree with them. That's not of any account. I mean, the scriptures talks about it. It's like if you agree with somebody... And you're and you're kind toward them, then that's not of any value to you. Doesn't what? start until it's like it doesn't start until. You, in fact, what I, I said this the other day in Facebook, uh, is that the the loving your brother doesn't start until they disagree with exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. So it it, it yeah, means yeah, yeah. more for me to say, you know what? I strongly, absolutely, unwaveringly, unflinchingly think that homosexuality is sin yet 
I will treat you with love. Well, and again, you know one of the most instructive things I learned from Pastor Weaver? It first really connected the dot for me that love is the fulfillment of the law. It has nothing to do with whether I like you, whether I agree with you, or whether you evoke some emotional response from me by your presence. It has to do is do I obey the law of God when it comes to you? Exactly. And so when it comes to, because I had these kinds of experience all the time. I mean, I went to Georgia Tech, and so dogs. I was, yeah, there you go. I was surrounded by, to a large extent, atheists, but I also had, I, 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 you know, I'm a poet, so I was in the poetry workshop, and so, as it is, with the poetry people. You can edit that I out. Like that. <laughs> that, that, I really don't even like that. Yeah, yeah. So, as it is with the poetry people, there tends to be a large portion It's of, five kids, folks. Yeah, yeah. I have five kids. I'm married. Whatever. Um, but I, there, are, there are a lot of people in that community that are homosexual, and... I I was around. I was in that I was in that community, and the question was, not what they would say is, you know, in order to be kind, in order to be loving, in order to be a good person, you need to agree with or endorse what they're doing. But I, I think I think the power of Christianity is that I can say, look, I don't agree with what you're doing. I think that what you're doing is harmful to yourself and to society and in, 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 in contradiction to God's law. And yet at the same time, I can value and I can honor and I can love and I can serve you. And in fact, I can do that better than anyone else. By the way, I would submit that the only thing that's missing in that, and I'm sure that you don't miss it when you are actually engaging people of a dissimilar worldview is that is you, you do need to, to do a, a token shout-out to uh, Christian apologetics and explain to them that this is not just the way you feel, but that you're basing your critique of their, of their lifestyle based on uh, uh, God's standard. Right. No, I mean, obviously. I mean, you, you, say, you say, look... Because in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, when you're talking to other people and you don't necessarily agree with them, it's not necessarily the case that you're saying, "Look, this is my opinion versus your opinion." You're not. You, you can't say that. Well, you're committing the cardinal doctrine as a believer, though, because your 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 assumption is is that something is absolutely true. Right. Yes. Exactly. That there are things that are absolutely true, and I, and, and and more than that, it's the case that I submit myself to that. That even if even even if even if I don't understand everything about it, even if I don't know all the ins and outs on it, I'm willing to submit myself to certain things and say, these are things that are true that I, that I apply to before anything else. And, but the thing is that that humility, when it comes to the truth, also should translate over to a, a humility when it comes to other people, where you say, I'm submitting myself to something that I don't necessarily understand all of yet, and I'm submitting myself to, to, to God, understanding that He's much larger than I am. And He's also called me to be a servant in this world. And so the things that you require, right, the things that you need, the things that are of benefit to you, 
I will do my best to be a benefit to you. Like, that is the law, right? Like, rather than killing you, I will promote your life. Okay. Rather than stealing from you, I will promote your Pull property. Pull it back on topic here and, yeah. and to wrap it up, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'll be a good bit of editing. <laughs> but the type of interaction that you are suggesting is an interaction that can really only best be done when you're in with somebody in when person. you're in person yeah yeah totally and again going back to the idea that we've I mean, perhaps broached early on and certainly in our previous some off mic conversations is that facebook imposes some very unnatural and 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 up until now unknown uh um parameters on how we engage one another and and in an interaction as christians as non-christians and I don't think, I think there's a lot of people from time to time, you know, I don't think anybody ever has a, a, a pang or a twinge of spiritual conviction that they need to spend more time on Facebook. Right. But many of us have experienced real conviction that we need to spend less, less time, time yeah. on social media because we realize that we're detached. Testify. Hmm. You know, like and, and so... Uh, one of the advantages that I have as an itinerant professional is that I get to go and engage people and meet them and, and, and they become real people. And when you when you fellowship with them in their home, in their kitchen, on their deck, back porch, whatever, there's, a, there's a, a measure of grace that you get with that. So now, hey, if, if, we have an, if we have an exchange on Facebook a week from now and we come down on different sides of an argument... We're going to cut each other some slack now because right. we have fellowship together. We have, you know, shared a bottle of adult beverage or, <laughs> or, 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 or a pot of coffee or a pot of coffee or right. something. Kool Aid, right? Yeah. So, so what I'm saying, we're going to we're going to we're going to engage and, and deal with one another differently. The brothers that I have met in person, I there is a I mean, I love all my brothers theoretically, but the but the men and women that I've had a chance to fellowship with in person and spend time with obviously and that's one of the the segues kind of into one of the things that we're that you have sort of inferred and we have talked about myself and several other brothers Stephen Perks from uh, Kuiper Foundation among them and some other brothers from the uh, uh, I will mention some names give a shout out to brother Jim Mogul uh, from uh, the Mid-Atlantic Reformation Society uh, uh Ken Souter up there in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, a good brother. We recognize that the church still needs reformation. And I was asked the other day in a breakfast meeting, where do you think the area greatest reformation the church is in need of? And I said, in re- recovering the, you know, the, 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 con- the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer and in, ecclesi- in ecclesiology. In other words, how, what is the, how does the church function? What is it like to be a part of the body, and, 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 and how does each part fit into the whole? And uh, we don't need to rehearse the solas. We don't need to rehearse the inspiration and, and, and authority of Scripture or, 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 the textual, or textual criticism. What we need to learn to do is to work well with one another to advance the kingdom, and that first involves loving one another in, a, in the biblical definition. And so we're talking about these these questions of gifts, uh, 
we're talking about these questions of forgiving, of conflict resolution, of deferring to one another and considering others as more important than yourself. To me, 500 years after the first Protestant Reformation, we need to go back to the epistles of John. I agree. And also, I mean, I've thought about this a lot too, like, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly that before God. That That's what he's required of man. How can, uh, Michael, how can our listeners uh, stay in touch with you? How can they uh, give us some resources and uh, for your work and those uh, Christian brothers who happen to be artists? Yeah. Because when we say artists, we tend to immediately peg them into a touchy-feely group that we can't really relate to. So we need to stress the fact that they're Christian brothers, indispensable members of the body who happen to have giftedness in the area and sensitivity and and insight into the areas of artistic endeavor. Right. It's music, music, visual, structural architecture. There's a lot. that's That's a broader... It is very broad, and and from the Old Testament all the way till till now, God has called particular people within the church in order to express His character in those ways. And um, and you think that we have much to learn from artists? I do. I ha- I think that that the arts are very underemphasized and underappreciated, especially within the Protestant communities. And I think that there is a lot about God's character, especially if we're going to take every thought captive. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that can't that can't be revealed, that can't be expressed outside the arts. Otherwise, God would have not used the arts to express His character in the Scriptures. So, if God thinks that His character can be fully expressed outside the arts, then He wouldn't have used the arts to express His characters in the Scriptures. So, can, yeah, he can would I have, jump he, in and interrupt for just one second? Yeah, just. Uh, um, and you can edit this out or put it somewhere else if you want to. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, <laughs> and you probably will. But but as as an attorney with uh, many opportunities to be involved with sort of Christian legal organizations and this kind of thing, and I, and I do participate to some extent. Um, I've become involved uh, to the extent I'm, I'm capable with the Nehemiah Foundation because honestly, I think it's of, of all the different things that I have. Um, been involved with. I think it's one of the most important. Um, I think that that the goal and the vision um, of renewing the arts for God's glory and and according to scriptures is you you talk about which hill to take next. I think that's that's at least in the top three. I think the law, you know, even as a lawyer, I think the law will follow. Uh, but but I, I wholeheartedly believe in the in the vision. Are you familiar with the book Cathedral Builders? I'm not, but this sounds good. Just from the time written by a, a, an attorney, it's a co- compilation book. I'm going to have to break it out. Yeah, but but I, I want to give my plug that, um, you know, and, and I may or may not like every single decision they make as far as art, but that doesn't really matter. The goal is, I'm not saying I disagree with any of your decisions. I understand whether I do or not. I'm wholeheartedly committed to support the vision, however I can, and um, and it's because I think um, it's like I say, if not the top, it's at least in the top three. I, I mean, I think we need to. Well, I, you know, I'm playing my hand a little bit, but I, I think we need to forget about the political realm for a little while, forget about the legal realm for a little while. Those things are important; they have their place, but those don't change cultures; they follow cultures. 
it's the art that changes the culture. Good point. So, so having said that, um, I just wanted to put in my non-artist blurb um, uh, uh, for the importance of the work, and I, I think it's absolutely essential to the continuing reformation of the church um, that we we see a um, a revision of this sap. And, you know, I guess there's no way to say this without it sounding critical to to some people, but it's the state of Christian arts is pathetic. It just it it absolutely is. When you say Christian art, you mean crappy art that Christians will buy. That's almost there, you, whether, there, whether it's whether it's liter, in literature, the genre, Christian fiction is you can almost guarantee you're going to pick up a piece of fiction that sucks. Just to be blunt, would you? Would you? Would you? Would you? Uh, I've heard. Am I wrong? I've heard C.S. Lewis uh, defined described as our favorite Christian heretic. Uh, <laughs> but but what, they got some things right. They got them really right. Yeah. Uh, so. Since we're doing this unscripted, unedited, do you want to? Do you want to? Would you care? Because you're a man of the world. You're not in. You're not of the world, but you're in the world, and you're alert, and you're trained scholastically, a good mind. You're observant. Would you like to point out what you would for our listeners, what you would consider to be examples of good, kingdom-focused Christian art? Oh. Well, that would be, I'd probably expose my ignorance more than anything. Um, I'm probably best equipped to comment just on literature. And, um, yeah, I would point C.S. Lewis. I'd point Dostoevsky. Uh, I'd point, um, I can't remember his name. You gave me the book. George Herbert? The, the, um, the recent one by the Japanese guy. Oh, Shisaku Endo? Shisaku Endo. Um, um, you know, Elliot. Uh, so, as far as music, I I, I I hesitate to comment one way or the other. I, I love the the artists that Nehemiah Foundation has supported. Okay. Um, so there are. So we're gonna we're gonna get a there's plug. Some, yeah, you, you can go to the website and see who they've supported. Uh, I think you see. I think you see very thoughtful. Um, uh, Keeping this moving along. Yeah, I don't want to walk down. So there's uh, there, there, heavy metal. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. I, I wouldn't say thumbs up or thumbs down. I, Genre-wise, I don't care. Uh, there are there are numbers of heavy metal uh, bands that I'm sure that are doing what they should be doing. I think that the art should be freed to pursue the truth in their environments. I, I have heard some really great rap that uh, Jeff Durbin and Apologia Radio uh, have yeah. promoted. Yeah. If you're familiar with that ministry, I am. Yeah, Reach Records, Lamp Mode Records. There's a lot of hip hop that's out there that's really worthwhile. So um, post millennial, I mean, yeah, totally. totally. Yeah, one of the things I struggle with is, and I don't know, this is something maybe I'll have an opportunity to to talk to Michael about more because he's thought about it more. He's a lot smarter than I am about this stuff. But but aesthetics is a part of Christian ethics, and you know the question that I have long wrestled with and never had a, a good answer on is, is, is what is beautiful mm. and uh, and I, I think God is beautiful I think his creation is beautiful and that's interesting I think, that's I an think, interesting concept right there we could milk for a long time we could God uh, is, is God, God the beauty of God uh, right. yeah I mean I mean he cares um, but what does it mean now does it mean does it mean Mozart you know you know I mean I think I think it, it, it may mean it may have meant that and it may mean that in a, in a certain context does it mean that now the music we're producing you know, you I, think I, about I'm, I'm at a loss there. I just have complete ignorance. But but it's something I think we ought to be asking ourselves. And 
I think any Christian artist at the end of whatever work he produces needs to go, is this God honoring and beautiful? I don't think any Christian artist can be an evolutionist because it deprives God of his essential creative power and ability, you know. Some artists are, though. C.S. Lewis, for instance, was at least partially evolutionary uh, in his thinking, and he was still a good writer. Yeah. But, but I agree with you that the idea that honoring God in his creative capacity is central to our imitation of God in our creative capacity. Um, but when it comes to the arts, a lot of it has to do with freedom. They're... they're Right now, there is an extraordinary amount of restrictions that are placed on Christian artists in terms of what they are allowed to pursue and explore, and that is a problem. So there, you think that in addition to, you know, we typically think of Christian reconstruction in terms of law, and by it can, that, can, that very term connotes restrictedness. And we think, hey, we want to be restricted for the purpose of efficiency or effectiveness, yeah. like a, a railroad track for a train. Right. Boundaries, yeah. But there is also an aspect of liberty that you think is probably neglected. No, totally. I mean, God, yeah. Jesus said, it is for freedom's sake that I set you free. I mean, that there is a value in the idea that fully pursuing God in Jesus is a freeing endeavor, that you are not more free in any other environment than you are when you are fully committed to the will of God. And so, so for an artist to say that we are going to create these restrictions, because a lot of it becomes very pharisaical. A lot of it becomes very legalistic. The idea that you're not allowed to talk about you know, pain, suffering, repentance, lamentation, any of these things, because that's not really pleasant. That's not really feel good. That isn't really, that's not really uh, positive, and God's all about positive. It's just canonical. Exactly. So, exactly, that's what I'm saying, is that when you look back at the scriptures and you say, okay, well, what kind of art is the scriptures willing to endorse? And you look at Job. Tragedy. Or Ecclesiastes, or the major and minor prophets. You're going, all right, we have become way too restricted yeah. because if we were to go out and try and be like, hey, guys, what do you think about this psalm? Blessed are those who dash the children of the enemy against the rock. It's like, <laughs> I don't think we would yeah, accept that's, that. That's not very As a song in the script, you know, in the church. But but that's in the psalm book. And, and, I, and seriously, I have heard reformed people tell me that some of the psalms were written in the flesh. That ain't right. That some of the psalms should not be accepted, because well, I think what you're what you're what you're allude, what you're alluding to is something that Matt introduced. And yeah. I think it's And I think it's a powerful thought. Is that when we ter- when we think in terms categorically of Christian reconstruction, we tend our mind tends to gravitate without any prompting yeah. to political. Right and legal. And, and, and legal. Right. Yeah. And, and 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 coming from a lawyer. Right. He he is giving you know he's suggesting that hey we maybe we need to back away from this and and put absolutely. as much and I think you're absolutely right about the idea of what 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 drives culture you know it what is art what's in, yeah what why are people feel so powerfully about. X Man, Superman. You're either a Battlestar Galactica. You're either a Star Wars or, right. or a Trekkie. 
Right. You know, it's like culture, popular culture, even though that's not my thing. It doesn't it doesn't scratch me where I itch. Okay? No, why does anybody care what you George Clooney thinks about the presidential race. Totally. It's because of his good art. He's mm-hmm. an extraordinary actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no. It, it, you know, he may be the you know pit of a humanity, <laughs> but, but as an actor, know. he's extraordinary. And his art. So what we need art, to do is we really need to work at base. evangelizing A-list actors. We need. <laughs> no, we need we to be need, A-list actors. Exactly. That's <laughs> where it boils down to is we need to be them. And, and, the, and not only that, we need laws, to support them. The laws them. will work themselves out if we can I, get that right. I agree I with you. I agree with you. And the scriptures are clear on this. It says, reveal your work to your servants. And your beauty to their children. Okay, so let me ask okay, my list. Let me ask my war room listeners. Let me ask my war room listeners out there. Do you feel it? Was this a tactical discussion, or was this just some, you know, uh, Memorial Day weekend, you know, chit chat across some good bourbon? It was certainly su- that. It was that. <laughs> and, and, we, and, and, and and you know what? I would dare say, and this is this is instructive for our for our brethren out there. You want to extend the kingdom? Get together with some of your brothers face to face and sit on the deck, have a cigar, drink some bourbon, laugh, tell jokes, and cut up with one another and have some fun. And maybe you'll be more mo better equipped to extend Christ's kingdom. Agreed. And make and make art. Yeah, and I mean, it does, I, I think I think there's a I think a lot of people don't use whatever degree of gift they have because they think, well, I, I can't sell a record, I can't publish a book, nobody, I, I'll never be a Beyonce, but I, I mean, I would like I, I, I think I think I think Michael would agree. Part of um, you know you you never know whether you're going to have good art until you until you start trying to produce it. And I think uh, probably there's a lot more people who could, who could, um, you, you know, who, who have gifts to some degree, but they feel like it's not, it doesn't measure up to, or, or it doesn't fit the paradigm of what people like or what well, the, Christian yeah, the, Well, the question is, is that if, okay, let's say you do, by the grace of God and some quirk of providence, produce some artistic expression that people are actually willing to download or pay, or even wonder of wonders, pay money for. Just bless your family with it. How does that link? How does that connect? This is a serious question. We're not just talking. How does that connect? How does that connect? How does producing good art draw a line? Connect the dot for me between good art, kingdom building. I will. So, if you deal, if you're talking about the youths, let's just talk about the youths and unbelievers. The youths. Okay, so talk about the youths and the unbelievers. It's statistically the fact that a lot of the youths are currently leaving the church, that they are growing up in the com- in the community of the church, and at a certain point are leaving. I mean, like there's this book by Ken Ham called "Already Gone," and it's like two thirds or something. It's a ridiculous number of the youths who are apostatizing from the church, uh, statistically speaking. And then you've got unbelievers who don't already believe the truth and are looking in at the church and saying, you know, what's the deal with you guys? All right, so the power of the arts is that when you look at the youths, 
and just go and ask ask some of these young people you know your kids or or your or your acquaintances who have apostatized from the faith or left the church just go and ask them and you'll find out something very interesting none of them disagree intellectually like they will give you the right answers mentally speaking they were they they probably have been generally trained as well as is necessary in order to understand the gospel but for some reason or another they don't love the truth and that is a really big problem like this was the case with me when i was growing up even when i drifted away from the church and started living a life that was completely in contradiction to god's law if you were to ask me about you know six-day creationism or presuppositional apologetics or any of these kinds of issues I, w I would give you better answers than anybody could give you i would give you the right answer the true answer but here i am off you know fornicating or getting drunk or being an idiot i thought i was the only person that did that no no that was me that was me too this is both you too yeah both of us okay and so the problem was not that i didn't think the right thing the problem was that I didn't love the right things. So I loved to do what was wicked, even though I thought in my mind and intellectually assented to the truth of the Bible and Christianity. And I think that you'll find with a lot of the young people who have left the church that that, that experience is true for them as well. That they have been taught largely the right things, but they don't love the right things. Okay, so what you end up with in the church is you have a vacuum of beautiful things within the church, and then you have vanity outside in the world. So the world offers a beauty, but it's a short-term beauty. Like, these things are good for a period of time, but they lead to destruction. But the church says, hey, reject that vanity that's out in the world, and instead hang out in the church where there's nothing. And when you're talking to the youths or unbelievers, that vanity is almost impossible as a, as, as a draw, right? I mean, God, it is the case that every single one of us as believers should be willing to pursue God even when everything is taken away from us. I mean, look at Job. He has his children taken away from us. His wife calls him to curse God and, 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 and you know, like all of his properties and okay. all of his stuff is taken away. Right, let me jump in here. Yeah have to do it yeah so i'm going to ask you uh do you connect because this is going to basically uh in, in the minds of many uh recons this is going to determine whether or not you're heterodox or orthodox and if right. i just simply by yeah. how you answer this question sure <laughs> and that is is what do you think of the term christian hedonism okay I don't know. I mean, I know John Piper, and I know that, that term and everything, but when it boils down to it, what I believe is, I, I would say, let's go before John Piper to Augustine, who says, love God, and then do what you want. Was that Augustine that said that? I thought that was I, mean, I thought that was a girlfriend back in <laughs> a girlfriend back in Bible college's father, right, 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 right. Southern Baptist missionary. No, no, no. That so was, that was Augustine. Augustine. Yeah, so yeah. basically, the idea, so the idea being that love God and do what that you want. if your heart, I mean, or the, oh, let's go with the Psalms, right? That delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you, and the, desire he will give you the desires of the heart. So the idea being that you need to, Not to focus. Not include my ex-wife. That. 
You need to focus your Separate heart. Separate podcast. Separate podcast. Bro. Love. You need to focus <laughs> your love, your affections, in those things that are of God. Really, ultimately, you need to focus your affections on the Lord Jesus. And if you love Jesus, then you will do his commandments. But see, I think a lot of times what happens is that we're telling our kids, do his commandments, but we're not really working very hard in order to train, discipline, and direct now, their affections. Do, do we believe? Now, Michael, let me ask you a question, because yeah. you, you believe in, in total depravity. I do. Do we believe that somehow if we begin to apply this more, uh, I don't know, I don't know the term, egalitarian, or this more, this broader... We don't want to use that term. More, more. How about incarnation? More incar. Okay, more incarnational approach to the arts and to our expression. Is that gonna? Is that gonna somehow uh, be more uh, winsome or more uh, uh, appealing to the lost, to the world around us? Yes, it is. So let me tell you the story about this guy named Atsuro Satuo, who was a Japanese sculptor who started working on the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain. Okay? So there's this, there's this cathedral that's being built in Barcelona, Spain that was de designed by Anton Gaudi, who was an architect, and it's been being... It's, it, it, it is not finished yet. And no, it was in Cartagena. Is it, where is it? I thought it was in Cartagena, but it's not. No, it was in Barcelona. Bar that's right, Barcelona. The one that looks like it's got like... Barcelona. Uh, it, almost, <laughs> no, it almost looks like it's got like skeletons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. Totally, totally. What, what do they call that style? Uh, it's a weird style. It's a Gaudi style. Yeah, it's but. Gaudi. It's Gaudi particularly. But it's like a naturalist style or whatever. But it's like 150 years. It's a gothic years. zombie style. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> 150 years in, in the making. Right. Well, okay, so Etsuro Satuo uh, uh, started working on this. On, he's a sculptor from Japan. And he started working on this cathedral. And for whatever reason, in the cathedral itself, he saw something in it that was transcendent and wonderful and beautiful to him. And he said, you know what? Anton Gaudi, I don't know how he came up with these ideas, but I need to get my mind in whatever place his mind was in so that I could work on this better. So, Etsuro Satuo, some, this Japanese guy, Japanese Shinto Buddhist, right, comes over, starts working on this cathedral and becomes a Christian in order to get him, his mind in the right place to work on uh, the Sagrada Familia. And I do believe that he is a legitimate Christian. I mean, I've heard his testimony. It is solid, right? Or let's say, let's go back to the prophet David, you know, where he talks about uh, he has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our Lord. Many will hear and will fear and will put their trust in the Lord. Right? So when God puts a song in David's mouth, a song, now not a sermon necessarily, a song. Mm. Mm. We're talking about a song. When God puts new art into the mouth of well, David. That, it's an exclusive song to these right? <laughs> right? And then the unbeliever hears this song and is drawn to fear and trust the Lord. There is, now, not everybody, okay? There are lots of people like you and I. I, look, a rational argument will win me 100% of the time. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. For a lot of people, that's not the way they're organized. Well, you know, this is what's really interesting about evangelism and are about art. 
is that there is a, we know uh, propositionally, cognitively, that God, the Holy Spirit, uses language. Now, we heard the gospel, we heard the good news in English. Other people hear it in a language that we wouldn't even be able to make sense out of. That we would think that was mumbling or, or gibberish. Same and, gospel. And yet, it was the, the, the words in their language were endued with regenerative power by the Holy Spirit so that when people heard it in their tongue, propositional tr propositions that were in that message produced life where there was no life and there's a part of us i think i frankly think anyone who's ever done street preaching or done evangelism uh not just handing a track and, and and you know but literally engaging people whether it be you know the bridge illustration and four spiritual laws romans yeah. road whatever maybe whenever we I, I think there's a part of us that remains incredulous when the propositions of Scripture actually produce a result. Yeah, totally. We're actually, it's like we're surprised. Yeah. And we yeah. shouldn't be surprised. Uh, we should never be surprised. But we, I mean, we, we would say, well, yeah, it always produces its work. Like God says the rain falling upon, you know, it uh, produces, you know, seed for the grower and, 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 and grain. And, and, and it always produces, it always accomplishes that purpose for which, wherewith, wherewithin I sent it. It never returns void, and yet when we hear the God, when we, when we actually have a chance to convey information, whether it be our testimony with Scripture uh, in, in, interwoven into it or, or whatever, our track, and a uh, life has changed, that's actually we actually find that is novel and surprising. Yeah. And what I guess I'm hearing here is that truth can be embodied in a song or a piece of art. In the same way that it can be embodied in a sermon. Not in the same way, but in an equally powerful way. Okay. And it depends on the audience. Especially when you consider, as uh, ministries like Answers in Genesis have been so powerful in helping us to re recover, is the fact that the gospel is grounded in not that... Uh, uh, it's grounded in the fact, or it starts. It has its 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 genesis in the fact that God is your Creator, right. not that not that Jesus is a friend who who will help you, but God is your Creator who cares for you, right. or who desires you to be reconciled to Him. So creation is the gospel, and art is created. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and so, in that respect, as you said earlier, in a sort of an offhanded way, artistic expression teaches us something ex important about the person and nature of God. And by the way, God being who he is, what could we possibly learn about God that was not important? Right, so, yeah. And that's, that's, that's basically that's right. what I'm saying, is that if we're talking about the whole counsel of God, we can't neglect all the ways in the scriptures that God revealed himself. 
like in nature and in the scriptures. If God has revealed himself in certain ways in the scriptures and in nature, then we need to be exploring those ways in order to express and explore the whole counsel of God. And I think part of the major, major, major limitation of the Reformed community has been that they have narrowed in on a very particular, very true, but narrow way of exploring God's character that doesn't really take into account the entire way that God explores and expresses his character in, in, in the world and in the scriptures, even in the scriptures. And with, uh, with a tradition that is so obsessed with sola scriptura, with the Bible alone, you would think that they would be very interested in exploring at least all the ways that God has expressed himself in the scriptures. And yet, when it comes to parable, story, poetry, narrative, lyric, visual. song, visual, etc. Dramatic. Yeah, dramatic. They aren't very interested in learning and exploring in those areas. Brothers and sisters, uh, this has not been your typical War Room, <laughs> war room podcast. But I, I, I pray that this has been evocative, that it has been... Um, that it provokes you to consider uh, how broad is the gospel. And uh, I want uh, Michael to, um, and I believe that this is a brother, having met him and been here with him, I think this is a brother who we need to hear. I believe that our brothers and sisters who are wired and created by God with similar gifts and, and, and intuitive abilities have important things to communicate to us about the nature of God, about the nature of the body of Christ, and hence they, they point us in important directions. They, 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 they serve as signposts to instruct us how to more effectively and biblically personify the body of Christ, not only as it pertains to loving one another and working together as we seek to extend Christ's kingdom in every sphere of life, but also it's this whole conversation has been pregnant with the concept of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So Michael, give us your website. Tell us how they can... Uh, being, uh, they, they can pay attention to what you guys are about, and and, and Lord willing, we'll have you on additional e on on future episodes. All right, thanks. So the Nehemiah Foundation's website is renew the arts renew the arts dot org, and uh, you can find out a little bit more about the artists that we support, the art that we create, and our vision and mission there. And my personal website where I write different random things about different things that connect to faith and mystery and art and etc is uh, michaelmenkoff.com so m-i-c-h-a-e-l m-i-n-k-o-f-f.com Amen. Well I think it's particularly instructive and, and relevant and helpful that uh, Michael was was I mean he was weaned and, and from his earliest remembrances in the Reformed Church as his Reformed and as Reconstructionist as any of us can possibly imagine. And yet, this soil 
grows many different types of plants. So we thank you and we thank your good friend Matt Bryant, attorney from Georgia and Florida, to, for joining us here on this episode of The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.